if younger kids are taught to move fast and we gradually build in the technique, just, just slide it in there every once in a while, they're going to be okay. But we both have seen athletes that come from South America or Europe or, you know, Asia that are unbelievable movers and didn't have people like you or I. They played in the streets. They did stuff like that. I remember when I was at one of the big tennis academies, we'd get kids from South America that would come and we would, we would do athletic stuff. These kids just moved fluently. They didn't have people like that. They just were, you know, they just played all the time. So I think the mistake we make is we take a young kid and say, no, 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 no. We're not going to shuffle until week three because we haven't learned how to run forward yet. I'm like, are you kidding me? You, you, you got a kid who's going out and playing with their kids at recess and they're shuffling, playing basketball oh, yeah. or soccer or something. Get them going at speed, let them go fast and let their central nervous system adapt to that new speed. And that's the one thing when they get older, if they've had exposure to that speed, they can grow off that. That was Lee Taft, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, in their store. That item is Exogen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exogen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts and a vest, and you can strap these uniquely fusiform shaped weights that they're light in nature, 100, 200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from back long ago on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to recently Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself. I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel uh, form and technique change. It, it's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power, and it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10-meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body, an ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it, and that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. Welcome to another show. It's great to have you guys here. So Lee Taft is a guy who I have waited way too long to have back on this show. We did two uh, fantastic episodes back in the first uh, hundred of the of this series. Lee is a world-renowned athletic speed, athletic movement, game speed expert. His lectured across the world, trained numerous, numerous athletes. He's one of the OGs of this stuff. He started back in 1989, training athletes out of his garage and has built his system ever since then. Lee's blend is, in my mind, kind of like taking the best of of physical education methods, athletic performance, and biomechanics methods, and then just motor learning development and, and that art of having fun 
and being an athlete and putting this all together in a way that makes us all better coaches. And our first two shows, Lee uh, talked a lot about uh, one, just the nuts and bolts of different tr- uh, change of direction sequences, rather than just saying change of direction, what are some different situations you can go into and, and look for and how to train them. Uh, he also went into a lot on game speed and reactivity. So in this show, we covered a few things. One was uh, just a good talk on the athletic world today. How are kids different now than when Lee was first training them? And really, what are some things that need to change, not just in what we're doing in the gym when we are working with athletes, but outside the gym and the whole developmental process? I've had coaches on the show a lot to talk about this topic, and I really was excited for Lee's insight on it because here's a guy who really sees the ins and outs of how athletes are moving and these movement qualities and how that's changed over time with this the influx of specialization and athlete schedules completely full the time and, and those types of paradigms. So we spent a lot of time just talking about long-term developmental concepts on the first half of the show. Uh, then we got into a really, a really integrated talk on warm-ups, how Lee uses games, unpredictability, fast agility, competition to fuel his warm-ups and how that can transition to his actual workouts. He also talks about game speed and high-velocity as a long-term development model, which was an awesome chat, and a ton more vision, actual sport warm-ups, low box training that you can do anywhere in like a six-by-six space. So there's something on the show for everybody, regardless of who you are. You cannot help but benefit from the knowledge of Lee Taft. Again, he is an OG when it comes to athletic movement, athletic speed, and every talk with him is always fantastic. So I hope you guys enjoy this show. I certainly did, and let's get on to it. Lee, so I know before we started recording here, we were just talking about how, and I love asking coaches about this who were like kind of the pioneers, you know, like 10, 20 years ago, what was it like in the private sector? But I'm, I'm curious, what was it like? I think there's a, a lot of talk about like the a la carte athlete, the overserved athlete, athletes who have a coach for this, that, and the other thing now. What were things like when you started as a speed coach way back in the day? Yeah, yeah, great question. So when I first started working with athletes and, you know, 1989 was when I really first started and I, I worked with athletes on the side as well as I coached and, and taught. And you, you didn't compete. Number one, you didn't compete for the dollar. So you didn't have parents who had to decide, okay, do I pay this personal trainer and this, you know, skills coach and this speed coach or whatever, which you, you deal with now. So you didn't compete for that. And then you didn't compete for their time. Actually, back then, it was really common to have parents say, Lee, we need something for our kids to do. You know, what do you got? So now it's the opposite. Kids are going, you know, pulled in all different directions. So what was really nice is it was so common when I opened up my first Speed Academy in 1994. It was very common for me to have athletes easily three days a week but often four days a week. And, and if, if they, if I would have let them, they probably would have come five days a week. It was, it was just an environment where they played their school season when it was done, unless they played another sport, they were done. You know, they just, you know, they didn't have AAU. They didn't have all the travel teams. It was starting to creep in a little bit where I'm from, but it wasn't very big. So we never had those issues. And it's funny, like, we didn't seem to have, as I look back at it, we didn't have a lot of stressed out athletes. We didn't have athletes that were just in continual fatigue, mental and physical fatigue. Obviously, injuries were really, really low. It's funny because we, we talk about ACLs now 
like we talk about drinking water. I mean, it's as common as anything else or Achilles tendons, you know, things like that. We never talked about it. If we heard it, it was like, oh, my gosh, did you hear about this athlete over there? They, they tore their ACL, and it was like this big news. And now it's like, oh, yeah, they got their third ACL on their team this season. You know, we didn't deal with that stuff. And I just think a lot of it is not only the fact that their, their time is taken, so they're training all the time. They're never recovering. But mentally, they're just not absorbed in any one process because they can't. Their, their attention can't be dialed in. Like when they used to work with me, I was it. If they, didn't, if they weren't playing softball or basketball or volleyball, they were working with me and we had fun and we trained, but that was it. Now I'm getting them probably at 50% mental capacity and physical capacity because they just came in the door all sweaty and all tired and just got a you know fast food on the way from a skills coach to my facility. And so it's really, really tough to deal with them. So we didn't have to deal with that. That was totally different. And I, I, and I really think Joel, and you'll appreciate this. I could honestly say I could get results quicker back then. Not that that was my goal to just try to get them real fast, but just through sound training, they got results quicker because they had more to give me, you know, they, there was just more there. They absorbed a lot better. Now, it just takes time because you you, you get, take one step forward, you take another step back because they're fatigued or tired or possibly get nicked up or something like that. So yeah, it's it's a totally different environment, and that's that's even more pressure on us as coaches to be smart and not get pulled into working them harder and harder because mom or dad says I want them to get fast in six weeks. We got to be smarter than that. Yeah, it's interesting. What do you think that I mean? You've since 1989, right? So you've seen it all, especially too. I mean, I know you used to do. PE and work, like working in the sports themselves as well. And so, I mean, is this, is a lot of that due to like the rise of, I guess there's more pressure, more college scholarships, but like more AAU teams, more travel teams. What are some of the big rocks that I guess that have taken up these kids time? I mean, I think for the, for you, it's obvious, but maybe for those of us who are on that other side where it's just commonplace, you know, oh, this is how it is. What were some of those things that were happening that really started to cause these kids time to get taken up? Yeah, you know what I really think? I think the biggest thing was because now the parents of these athletes started that process. So many of the many of the athletes that I've trained uh, later in my career when I had my speed academies, well, I had their mom or their dad as well when they were young. Hmm. And they started to go through this AAU process. So that's what the household knows. The household knows, hey, you know, we, we finish dinner and then we jump in the car and drive an hour. And we go to AAU practice. We drive back and then we pack up for the weekend and we play in these tournaments, soccer, volleyball, baseball, whatever, basketball. And that's what they do. So, so the expectations now are, well, that's what we do. When I grew up, it was totally different. It was totally, you, you, you play football, when that's done, you, you mess around for a week or two, then you go play basketball, when that's done, you mess around until the snow goes, and then you run track or tennis or whatever, baseball. So now it's, it's just, it's so commonplace to just keep going from one thing to the next. So certainly the influx of AAU, um, the influx of coaches saying, gosh, if you don't do this, you're probably not going to get a scholarship. So now all of a sudden they're playing on the parents 
an athlete's weakness to be able to decide for themselves what's right. What helped myself and then, you know, my wife is because I've gone through it all. I, pl I played high school, played college, played two sports in college. I've coached. I've worked with professional athletes. Although I've seen it. So my daughters who both played college basketball did very little AAU. They did it. But what we did is we would tell area teams, hey, our daughters are available if you got somebody sick or hurt. So my girls would get picked up on a weekend, like playing a local tournament. <laughs> they didn't have to travel. They didn't have to go to all the practices. And that's how they would do it. And then other times they were just in the gym with me or I would used to make them go and play pickup. They'd go play pickup with the boys at the rec center. And so they, they never burn out. They never got tired of it, you know, and I was training them. So I, I kept them strong and quick and all that. That a lot of people don't have that luxury, right? They don't have that. And they, and they're, my wife and I look at it now like, hey, if they don't play, they don't play. All right? I want them healthy. I want them healthy adults. I want them staying in fitness. If they don't play college basketball anymore, we're, we're cool with that. It doesn't matter to us. Most parents can't understand mm -hmm. that. They can't grasp it. And that's what causes the kids to feel pressure, even if they don't want to do it. Mom and dad want them to do it. And maybe they hear mom and dad have financial struggle talks, you know, in the other room. And say, how are we going to get them to college? And they say, well, so now the kid feels pressure to play. And it shouldn't be that way. But unfortunately, that's what we deal with. Man, that's heavy. <laughs> I just thinking how even just like the it's funny, like as an athlete, it's like, oh, college scholarship. It's like it's always kind of thrown in your face as a I mean, I thought about it even as a young athlete, you know, 20 years ago. And it's it, it makes me think about just goal setting period. And they talk about goal setting being kind of a fine thing because and this is some of my own research I've been doing, but like the goal setting, if it takes you out of the moment, then it's not helpful. Like if you have this unrealistic goal or even a goal that you put too much pressure on yourself to achieve versus having a healthy balance of process goals and things that can keep you in the moment, it can have a negative effect actually. At verse, I, and so I'm not a goal setting expert, but I do think about that. It's like, how can I, and even when I get athletes, I remember when I, my evolution as a strength coach over the last eight years was really, how do I get athletes in the moment where this is all that matters right here? And, and this is gonna be the best part of your day right here. Hopefully. I mean, I want you to love playing your sport too, but you know, that yeah. was it. And it's just, it's, it's, I, I love what you did there with your kids. I feel like someone could actually have almost like a book or like a ha parent hacks on how to hack the AAU system and not doing it and do what you did with your children. I love that. Yeah, and, and it's funny because my girls will tell you, when I used to bring them to the gym to shoot, we'd go to the park or sometimes outside. I like to get them outside because, number one, it's fresh air, and they learn to be in the elements a little bit, a little bit of wind, and they had to adjust their you know, things, and it was fun. And that's how I grew up playing. We played out in the parks, not indoors. So it, it, I want to get kids back to that. But one thing we they'll even say it is they could miss 20 shots in a row. And I wasn't as concerned on that. Of course, I'm going to address their shot and the mechanics or, you know, whether even if we were throwing a ball or kicking, whatever it was, I was always focused on their, their intent, their effort, their attitude after they missed a bunch of shots. Like, what are you going to do? You missed it. You can't change it. So why are you sulking over that? And, and why are you not giving good effort? Cause when effort, um, when effort, dies then then everything else after that becomes less important so we had to change our schemes then i would start playing fun games with them and we'd just get away from technical things so to your point of staying in the moment 
I appreciate goals. I understand goals, but I'm a journey guy. I'm, I'm very big on things that I can control and athletes can control because in the moment, if they want to be a, if they're a sophomore, they want to be a college player. They can't touch that. It's too far in front. They can't touch it, but they can touch how they feel right at that moment after they missed a couple shots or they got fatigued and their attitude dropped. We can impact that and they get an immediate um, result and even a visceral response to that. That's where we can impact them. So I try to live right in the moment. And then we say, look, at if you want to be good, you got to control these things because all of a sudden the scholarship or the, you know, getting recruited or, you know, being the best player in your conference in high school, that stuff will show up if you control these other things. But if you worry about those things and you skip all this, you know, important details while you're training, that stuff doesn't matter because it probably won't happen anyway. So I was real good with that with my athletes. And it took me a while to get parents to trust me to do the same thing. Cause they're like, no, 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 you know, we we're, we're trying to get their goals and we work towards this. I'm like, well, that's you, not your kid. You know, that's you wanting that. You better you better double check to make sure your kid wants it too. And you got to find out another way by then by just you asking. You got to have somebody else talk to them and then get the feedback that way. Yeah, and it seems like like what you said right at the beginning of this talk. Like that kid is coming to you with the bucket like so low. Uh, or tipping over stress by whatever way you want to look at it. Right. Um, and they yeah. just don't and it's like that attitude is going to cause your bucket to not have a whole lot left to give. And it makes me think about, I've talked to several coaches, uh, young coaches, I mean, it's more a young coach thing because it's like, but a uh, spike ball, um, like it's has been um, like, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to these coaches and they're like, yeah, sometimes we'll warm up with spike ball and the kids just don't even want to stop. They would, they would do it the whole hour. And you think about what other chance these kids have, you know, being pressured their whole life to be good at this sport and get a scholarship. And now you just get to be a kid in the moment again, you know, for an hour. Right. <laughs> of course yeah, they we want did that. that. We would play spike ball and we would play um, Z ball tennis, little Z ball. We would set up Cone to toss it over. So I would have two courts going on that and then they'd rotate through. And we did that stuff a lot. And that's, that's just like you said, I, sometimes I don't want them thinking, just, just go play. Just react. Don't think. We'll we'll get to that stuff later, and that that that's when they have their most fun. How what is z-ball tennis? How do you play that? It's like pickleball, or I mean, you were used to do PE stuff. You probably have loads of these games. Yeah, yeah. So you take the little agility ball, you know, the balls that bounce all over the place, the little, and you just we set up cones, and that's the net, and you have to toss it underhand over the net, and it bounces. You got to catch it after one bounce, and then toss it back. And so the agility ball bounces all over the place. Yeah, it's like so random. Like, re- yeah, like those little knobs so it randomly bounces. You don't, you don't exactly, know. Exactly. Yeah, I love it. Exactly, yeah. And so it goes all over the place. So, yeah, we would, we would use that stuff. And then you go to the spike ball game and do that. And, and they just had a great time. They got silly. And, and mm-hmm. that's what I wanted. Sometimes just get silly. It's almost like, you know, some nights you don't feel like watching anything intense. So you might watch a Seinfeld exercise <laughs> or a episode or something where you just want to not think and you want to laugh. Sometimes that's what I would do with them. I'm like, don't, don't even think, just play, have fun, react and goof off, you know? And, and that sometimes was the best practices we had after we started like that. But do you say, if you had to have like a little list of, I know you've done it all with like the ball sports, the games, like 
What are some of the best, I guess, uh, or I've even, I've, I've seen coaches do this for a while. Like if you play tennis, warm up with basketball. And I would, I mean, when I worked with tennis at Cal, we, sometimes we would just play basketball for the first 30 minutes and they loved it. And it was like the best warm up they could have done. Uh, do you have any guidelines for some of those games? Uh, and if you're playing, uh, if someone has a sport, like doing a different sport to warm up or some of these games that like the Z ball or those types of things, uh, I know we just talked about a little bit, but do you have some, um, some other ideas there that, uh, could expand our minds with, with that type of warm up or contrasting? Yeah, absolutely. Anything like that. So I love uh, soccer-related things for athletes that don't play soccer because it's tremendous. Number one, it's good coordination, it's good skill, but it's tremendous for the groin adductors, especially when they're not used to doing it. So sometimes I would just bring out tennis balls and they'd have a partner and they just had to kick back and forth to their partner. And I'd say, you can only kick the ball with the outside of your foot, or you can only Mm. kick it with the inside, or you can only kick it with your left. And they're bumping into each other and going all over the place. And, you know, I was giving them minimal instruction, only like where they had to touch the ball. We would do stuff like that. Um, a, A game that all my athletes love. Matter of fact, every time I started it, I'm like, I probably shouldn't have started it because you don't want to stop it. Is it's the most simple thing. What I do is I take my basketball team and I line them up on the sideline. And then my assistant coach would get at one baseline and I'd get at the other. And I had a basketball and I rolled it down the middle of the court. And the kids with the basketball had to roll their ball. So as the ball is going, they had to try to time it and hit it while it's going, you know, kind of like the, you know, when the ducks go across and you try to shoot it at the, <laughs> yeah. at the carnival, but they roll it. But here was the thing. I do that with kindergartners all the way up right to my high school athletes. The reason I do it is because I want them to number one, have fun. But number two is they read pace. They read angles. They read how much speed they have to put on the ball to time the speed of the ball that I'm rolling. But the cool thing is, Joel, is so if if I'm standing at the left baseline and the kids closest to me, now they're rolling their ball to catch up to my ball as where the kids all the way at the right, they're rolling it where they're almost trying to meet. And then I would switch their position. So they had to learn different things. One of the most favorite warmups we did, and I used to make them do it bowling left hand, two hands, you know, just a number of different ways. And they loved it. And I'm not kidding. I guarantee you, if you and I started doing this with a bunch of coaches, we could do it for an hour and they would, they would never get bored of it. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Oh, I love that, man. I, I would love to, I got to spend some time with you sometime, like doing all these games. I feel like that should be part of a strength and conditioning curriculum. It's like, we spend all this time, <laughs> like exercise physiology and the Krebs cycle. And it's like, Let's learn how to play some like that's where I feel like we've lost a lot is we've, we've made everything so I mean it's all textbook right but it's like but just to I feel like just to do phys ed for a year and to learn these developmental games and you see how even when you like you said even if you play those developmental games with older uh, athletes they love it like it and um I just think it is the 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 kindling of so many ideas and and as well as too I think I love how you said it was soccer in the lateral chain. Um, and that was a game I played with my tennis players a lot. But it was very like up and down because all the European tennis players were awesome at it. And all the Americans <laughs> were not very good. So yeah. <laughs> volleyball, I don't know, it's just we did a lot of games. And it was just fun to see who was good at what. Um, but I just, yeah, I, I love um, I just love that physical education uh, background. I, I kind of lost my train of thought. Uh, yeah. I, I, well, I, no, sorry, go ahead. While you're thinking, I want to mention something because this is important. And I've talked about this a lot. And I've actually... 
am creating a course on this and I just take my time with it, but for the development of the younger kids, the pre-adolescents and all, kids don't know how to read spin unless they're exposed to it. Mm. So if you and I were playing catch and I had a basketball or a soccer ball and I took it and I spun it at you and you saw my thumbs drop behind me, you would instantly say backspin. The ball is going to land and it's going to pull away from you, right? But if I went this way and my thumbs went over the top, you would automatically think topspin and the ball is probably going to kick at you pretty fast. Just like if I went this way and my left hand went over the top, it's going to spin away from you to the right or vice versa. I would do that all the time with my little kids, my first, second, third, fourth graders, and they had to learn how to read different spins and also apply different spins. And what happened was they got so good at predicting it early. You could just see them. They'd start taking off before the ball landed. But when we first did it the first couple of weeks, the ball would hit them in the face <laughs> and it would, it would, you know, trick them out completely. And then we started to do it where the person who's tossing starts behind you. So you can't see them. They would toss the ball out in front of you. You had to see the ball spin, but you never saw the hand. That's developing athleticism. Okay, that's perception. That's the kid who can all of a sudden move, look like they're moving really fast, but they just predicted really well. And that's what great athletes do. So, so I have a whole sequence I've done with my kids, even my 12-year-old now. I've had him go through all these things, and it's amazing. Now they're like, they pick things up so quick, but it's just exposure where phys ed isn't doing this anymore. You know, I think we got to get it back. And to your point, I think coaches have to do more of this with their athletes. Yeah, I know uh, it was either our first or our second podcast, and I, I asked you something about like athletes who can just learn on their own, right? Like the natural way. And you had said just exposure to different ball sports at early ages and those real you know, key neural networks. And like you're just saying, like perceiving spins and perceiving movements. And you said the thumbs are going down, so this means this. And having, um, you know, I was almost the... I was almost like the example of what not to do if you want to be good with uh, at a ball sport. Because I was, I eventually found my way into track and field, right? Like if you can't figure out all the perception, reaction cues, and mental, I think a lot of it for me was mental. I had some triggers that would cause me to really depress my performance. But I, like, so I was just trying to be the most athletic guy. And then it's just funny because sometimes I'll play with people who aren't super athletic but are insanely skilled. Uh, and one of the the main ones of my example is back at Cal, I, I would play like 21 in basketball with a WNBA like all-star. And she was only like 5'8", five, 5'9", five, not like super fast, not super strong, couldn't jump that high. But she would destroy me because I just, she would be like three moves ahead of me every single time. And then when I finally thought I caught up to her with like a move, I thought I figured out her move. She had like three more moves and she already knew that I, <laughs> she already knew that I was starting to catch up. So she's like, oh, I'll just do this move now. And I, I just yeah. feel like all this athleticism doesn't really mean anything if I can't read what you're doing fast enough. And it's just like, oh, so anyways, I, that, that stuff does, um, especially like the perception and all that. It, I, I just continually yeah. think about that example with me where it's like all this jumping and you know ability and all this just really I couldn't read what she was doing so it didn't matter it, it puts context to all the combines right yeah. when we look at all these combines and we see these greatest jumps and, and sprints but then just to your point when we look at an athlete that might not have that but has incredible intuition and in, in perception of what's happening that's why combines sometimes mislead us, 
Yeah, yeah, that, I know that's been a popular topic here. Like, and it's on top of it too. It's not hard to teach someone how to run a pro agility. I mean, most just put that's the right. cones out; they'll probably figure it out themselves for the most part. <laughs> but to to teach all the nuances of perceiving and game speed is just another ball game. Yeah. Um, so before I get to actually the, uh, this has been a great first part. Before I even got to the first formal question, um, <laughs> but you mentioned um, you mentioned the agility ball, and, and I was thinking about that because I it's funny like people will see that in like a perform better that little ball with like the random knobs and you drop and it goes any which way and i remember seeing i was like oh that sounds cool and you see it once in a while but i never really have seen coaches use it like um like that much and i know you had just mentioned it so what um in light of uh, unpredictability or anything or you know how do you use that ball uh, is it a common thing in your practice or how is how how is that yeah. type of thing work yeah for so you? at least at least a couple the three times a week i'd bring it out right during our warm-up or towards the end of the prep period and I would give them things like I would say, okay, your first five catches have to be with your right hand. So like you and I are partners. I have the ball, you're resting, okay? I toss it up. I have to catch it with my right hand no matter where it is. So cross body, wherever. And then you get it, you do your five. And then I come back. Now I get to do five with my left. You do five with your left. And then the last five are random. Well, we not only do that individually, but we'll do it as a team. So you and I are trying to beat the rest of our teammates who are partnered up as well. We're trying to get our 15 done before they get their 15. So it makes it competitive. They really start hustling. Uh, they get a little bit more dialed in on it, but they're learning to catch in all different ways. Then we'll come back. We'll do it again. And now it's partner to partner. So I have to toss my right hand you have to catch it with your right hand off the bounce and then you toss back. So now we're reading different angles. And then the last one I like to do with them is we'll toss it over your head. So I'll toss it behind me. I turn quick, read the bounce and then go get it. So we just had a whole series of things. And then I would use the wall too. Like we'd throw it off the wall, almost like racquetball, right? And then you got to read the bounce off the wall. So, but we would put that in our, in our uh, practice and sometimes maximum of three to five minutes but it just got them going. It got it got movements to be real quick. And you would be surprised how quickly they improve on it because they start to understand the bounce. And they understand the split step. When the ball hits, they should be hitting. Now they can explode. How much uh, How much of a, I'm sure it depends by age, like, you know, eight years old versus 15 versus 25. Yeah. But how uh, could you go into like what proportion of your, your total program? You got an athlete for an hour. Uh, what proportion is these fun, quick, you know, uh, just uh, totally uncoached warm-up games versus uh, getting into some more technical nuances of how they move? Yeah, if if days vary because if I if I sense that the athletes are fatigued, tired, bored, uh, upset, we play a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'll be fifty percent or more of the workout will be play-based stuff. I'll I'll sprinkle in teaching while they're playing while they're getting a drink i'll mm -hmm. talk about maybe you got to get a little bit lower you know you got to do this you got to do that and but that that will be the bulk of the workout um but typically the the beginning of a workout is um is different than probably than a lot of people do with the way we warm up and then we flow right into one of these type of quick games or reactive games or quick hand drills or something like that so i would say probably the first 10 minutes are those type of things. Even the warm-up, I try to do things that are challenging, but kind of fun and curious for them, you know. Um, and then and then we'll go into a little bit of technical stuff, maybe some jumping, 
maybe some technical um, quick bounces or jump. And then we do our reactive stuff, our real, like if we're going to do a tier one, tier two, tier three, that type of stuff. And then, and then if we're hitting strength on that day, then we'll do our strength. So, so it, it just varies, but usually that first 10 minutes is we're trying to have some fun with them. Awesome. Uh, do you have, um, do you ever have it where it's like, okay, I know I'm going to work like this specific, uh, type of game speed. And do you have a game that is linked to that? Or is it usually just, uh, how does that, does that ever have a connection there or how does that work out? Yeah. Yeah. So we, I have a series of tag games that we'll do and they're all different. So if I'm working with, let's say basketball or maybe even goalies, soccer goalies, there's a, there's a type of uh, tag game that we do that's very much lateral based. Okay, it's it's being able to control their bodies and move quickly laterally. But if I'm doing something like where athletes have to be able to close the gap on an opponent, close their distance and need to tackle them or or steal the ball from them or defend them, whatever. Then I have games where they they come at each other and then they have to be able to negotiate movements that way. And then we have somewhere that are pure chase tag games where there's a cornering. And things like that. So definitely, I think the, the couple things that it does is it. The most important thing is it gives them context. Like they have context. This is why you can't be too tall if you're mm. trying to make a sharp cut, or this is why you have to, you know, do this or that. And they get it. They automatically get it. And and secondly, because it's usually competitive based, I never have to worry about effort. The effort's built in, right? They, they just want to compete because it's a fun game and they don't want to get caught or tagged or whatever. So those two things allow me to get a lot of bang for my buck. And all I have to do, if an athlete continues to struggle like on a movement, I can say, this is why we're doing this. And they get it. They're like, coach, I get it. Now, I know why we're doing it. I'm just struggling with it. I said, that's okay. We'll work on it, but this is why. And they understand that versus me starting off with a random like cone drill that has no context to any sport movement that they might do. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so we try to stay in that line of uh, development. I'd like to take a break from the show to share with you a significant pendulum that has swung in my own personal training practice. Between my mid-20s and mid-30s, I was this veritable pre-workout fiend. I was in this place where I absolutely had to have a pre-workout before every training session, And after just seeing kind of the adrenal response flatline that that created, amongst other things, uh, at age 35, I've been sick of that that idea for a few years. I hadn't been taking pre-workouts for a few years, and I've been starting to get into more of uh, Logan Christopher's like mental training, uh, hypnosis prior to training sessions. I love that so much, I started to get into the products of his company, Lost Empire Herbs. So the first herb formula that I got was the Phoenix formula. This is far different from that generic bottle of Jinko Biloba that you might see at the drugstore. As Logan says, these are not your grandfather's herbs. This earthy and immaculately well-sourced compound, uh, my first dose of it, I felt this unique and subtle tingle through my whole body. And I instantly knew that I was onto something that was really going to change the way I looked at this portion of my training and well-being. Within two weeks of using the Phoenix formula, honestly, my lifts had gone up 10 to 15 pounds, my big lifts. Fast forward a few more months, and at age 35, I had hit the highest vertical jump I had hit in really about the last four to five years. I know herbalism was a really big and important part of that, and it's a really big and important part of my life and well-being today. 
I love what Lost Empire Herbs is doing, and I'm thrilled to have them as a sponsor of this show since I'm a user and believer in their products. And as we live in this increasingly chemical-filled world, they shine such a bright light on using the power of nature to help us become stronger and more resilient human beings. So if you want to get a hold of this herbal supplementation to boost your own performance, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. And you can see my own personal top recommended herbs that I use, including Shiliagit Resin, as you may have heard Grant Fowler talk about on a recent show, and then get 15% off that purchase. So again, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly, that's J-U-S-T-F-L-Y, and you can go ahead and see my top recommended herbs and get 15% off your purchase. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I, I really like that. And as I've gone through the process in my years of a coach, I, I could not agree more, especially to just... Uh, like the emotional state of the athlete, if, especially like you said, if they're coming in, they're a little off, they're not really into it. And you expect them to start say, doing just, just cones and move like this. It's just like that. You're not going to get all the athlete and it's, you wonder what they may have even picked up. So it's, it's, I, I love how that breaks down and how you utilize that to help prepare the athlete. So the first official question, I guess, which I've had a great time talking about, um, not on the sheet questions is this is like maybe the million dollar question is, is KPIs or key performance indicators when you're working game speed with an athlete. So how do you know, like what markers would be there to say, yes, I, I, you're improving, you're getting better. You're, you're as per the specs of the game and not just like we're talking like the combine or a five Oh five or a, something like that. Right. That's one of those questions that is always difficult only because the industry hasn't wrapped their brain around it yet. So my standards are different than national standards of this is what a 40 should look like. This is what a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a senior male or female should get in a 5105 or whatever. Um, that stuff doesn't matter to me as much, only if I have to get an athlete ready for that. So if, they, if they're going to a combine, I got to get them ready for it. So I will. So the way that I look at it is, are they making plays more consistently doing the various patterns that they're required to do? An example, if I'm a, if I'm a um, basketball player, can I consistently cut the, the, the offensive player trying to drive to the basket off because we've worked harder on lateral speed work like a lateral run step and we've understood position and angle so if i see them consistently even if they get beat and i decide the offense just made a better play than you but you were doing the right thing that's that's how i encourage them like you're doing the right thing you got beat by a better player at that at that play the next time you'll get them right and and so we look at are they hitting consistent angles of pursuit so you and I, Joel, if if we were cornerbacks and a wide receiver caught the ball on the sideline, was just, you know, bolting up the sideline, my speed, I might have to take a deeper angle to cut them off because they're faster than me. So I have to catch them deeper down the field. You might be able to catch them sharper because you're faster, right? That's what I want to see. Are they doing those things consistently? Are they using proper, you know, mechanics and stuff like that? But I'm bigger on do they learn because we've put them in situations where they have to make good decisions? And that, that's kind of how I, I judge it. And I know that's hard because most coaches are going to say, but, you know, how do I do that? I'm like, 
That's the art of coaching though. That's mm-hmm. we've gotten so analytic that we've forgotten to teach athletes. Listen, let's, let's use your judgment. That was a bad play because you took an angle on a guy that runs a four, three and you run a four, nine, you know, you're going to get beat every time. Take a better angle. Those are the, those are the KPI things that I look for, even though they're not traditional and standard. Yeah, I, that reminds me of something that Andy Ryland, um, I think he's the head of education for USA Football, had said, like, yeah. rather than praising like a, a, a technical a biomechanic, like praising decisions and decision making. And so would you say that if you had like a pyramid of speed, the, the base would really be like decision making before any sort of like it'd be like this? <laughs> would you say that's pretty accurate? Yeah, yeah, because an athlete that is not the most most technically sound can still make great plays if they read. We've all done that, right? Mm-hmm. We all were in recess where you're like, how the heck does this kid catch me? <laughs> and how does he how does he do that, right? And he's the kid who you look at him, you're like, there's no way. But they just have an instinct about them. They, they have a relaxation in the way they think. They don't, you know. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it makes them make easier decisions. They're not stressed out over it. Coaches in today's world stress athletes out because they're fearful of the wrong decision. My coaching is the opposite. Um, I get on them for not going for it, not, you know, go for the around the back pass. If that's the one that you felt was the right one, I'm cool with that. I'm okay with that. So what happens is we get, we get these athletes that are, um, that are reticent to make a play because of fear. You got to take that way away from them. First of all, educate them, make sure they understand percentages and odds, things like that. And then trust that they'll make the right decision and then guide them when they don't. But don't beat them up when they make a, a bad decision. Get on them when they make a bad effort decision or a poor attitude. That's when you ride them. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I haven't gotten to the point where I've actually coached like a youth sport yet. I feel like that's another thing that should be mandatory. I've thought of this like almost if you're going to be like, let's say you're a college strength coach. I feel like you should at least have to coach that sport on like the peewee level, like, you know, 10, 11, 12 year olds or something. And there's not a lot of pressure. You can. You just, it's just like, I don't know. I just feel like that would be so holistic for, for even if you don't even end up doing any speed or, you know, a specific decision or speed, obviously at a university level, it might not be your, your role, but just to understand. And just, I think to have that layer of empathy as to, um, or, or knowledge, I just think that you can't, um, it is, is never a bad thing. So I've, I've always felt like that was kind of like my idea. If I'm like creating this curriculum, here's, yeah. So would you say that really to really coach game speed, you can't, be devoid of, of you have to actually be able to watch film have an understanding of the game that that's where the sport and the strength coach or performance coach I don't even know what the terms are but you just can't be you have to be almost like a coach on some level like the, on whatever you want to call it you kind of have to be a sport coach with in a, a sense of the term yeah yeah without a doubt the, the more you understand it the more you can have a good conversation with the athletes right because if I don't understand cricket how do I how do I help them when they're struggling? Mm-hmm. I can help them technically. I can get their shoulders stronger. I can you know I can get them run better. But but when they're struggling, a lot of times it's not the mechanical thing. It's a mental thing. Mm-hmm. So how can I talk the sport with them? If if it's soccer and they're you know, struggling on the pitch, if I'm if I'm using if I'm you know using just hardcore training concepts with them rather than saying you know. You're just fighting yourself out there. I'm watching you and you're just tight and you you got, you know, you, you didn't mark somebody really well so you, and you dropped your head. 
And then that's when you could have been going in transition the other way, but you got left behind because you dropped your head. That's the conversation as a strength coach I need to be able to have. I'm not talking technique. I'm not talking offense, defensive stuff. I'm just talking, I'm seeing you out there. I see what you're doing. I know that you, you've got the ability, but you're fighting yourself right now. So if I have a better understanding of the sport and their mental approach to it while they're playing, I can help them, even though I'm not their head sport coach. I, I completely agree. And I guess if you would ask even, I mean, my experience, a lot of it, my 12 years, actually 14 years on the college level. So it's, I, yeah. I would say the athletes on the college level would say, and not including my time as an athlete, say, oh, what, what coach impacted you the most? If you're talking about strength coach, did you love your strength coach? And they would, if they gave, if they said they really did, I think a lot of times it would also be because that coach was able to uh, connect with them emotionally about the game on some level, give them emotional affirmations and ideally that coach did have experience in the sport and could offer maybe a different um, angle of things than perhaps their sport coaches, even if just in reinforcing what they're going through on some level. And I, I, I do agree with that. I think that's, it's something that we don't often think about. And again, I just, that's why, like you said, and other people on this podcast have said, just to be able to emotionally put yourself in the place of the athlete in context of their sport, I think is versus um, just being overly biomechanical because that's our world. And not that biomechanics are important. I mean, I'm a track coach. I love biomechanics, but yep. there's a time and a place for everything. That's right. Uh, so you had mentioned too, uh, you, you were kind of talking about um, something in this and just in our last few minutes, but uh, basically how to mess up an athlete, for lack of a better word, because you had said if, if, an, if a coach gets too biomechanical early on. So yeah. what are some processes by which you think athletes are, in addition to being, I guess, the overserved athlete where you're just too much on the plate, too many different coaches for too many different things? Um, outside of that bandwidth, what are some things that are doing a disservice to athletes early on in terms of their movement, their, their game speed and, and all that? I know you mentioned decisions there or, or over mechanicalizing things, but could you expand on that? How do you think that athletes are, uh, you know, coaching, like if I'm working with a group of eight to 12 year olds or something, how am I going to mess them up versus help them? <laughs> right, right. So if we take, if we take training out of the picture and we just watch athletes play, they go full speed when they have to go full speed. They go less than full speed when they have to go less than full speed to make a play or whatever. When I teach athletic movement skills, so, you know, acceleration, lateral, shuffle, crossover, hip turn, back, all this stuff. Whenever possible, I think athletes have to be taught to react and go full speed so that they're central nervous system adapts to the speeds in the limb control that they need. They're not going to get hurt. Okay. If an athlete's going to get hurt, they're going to get hurt. Like if they step in a hole, well, it doesn't matter if I'm going slow, faster, they're going to step in a hole. Or if they slip on a wooden floor that's wet, that's going to happen. But if, if younger kids are taught to move fast, and we gradually build in the technique, just, just slide it in there every once in a while, they're going to be okay. But we, we both have seen athletes that come from South America or Europe or you know Asia that are unbelievable movers and didn't have people like you or I. They played in the streets. They did stuff like that. I remember when I was at one of the big tennis academies, we'd get kids from south america that would come and we would we would do athletic stuff these kids just moved fluently they didn't have people like that they just were you know they just played all the time so 
I think the mistake we make is we take a young kid and say, no, 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 no. We're not going to shuffle until week three because we haven't learned how to run forward yet. I'm like, are you kidding me? You, you, you got a kid who's going out and playing with their kids at recess and they're shuffling, playing basketball oh, yeah. or soccer or something. Get them going at speed. Let them go fast and let their central nervous system adapt to that new speed. And that's the one thing when they get older, if they've had exposure to that speed, they can grow off that. But if all we did is technique them to death, number one, a slow speed skill is a different skill. Slow sprinting is not fast sprinting. It's a different skill. My limbs are different. The momentum is different. The, the deceleration of a limb is different. The striking is different. All that stuff. So we can't say that, well, we got to teach, slow them down first and teach them. You slow them down when that is warranted. Mm -hmm. Okay. If there's a skill that needs to be slowed down just so they understand position. But until I get them going fast, they're not going to develop the way we want them to develop. They're going to just develop slow because that's what we're doing all the time. So I think young coaches or young athletes have to be taught to do things really fast as long as they're safe things. Like I'm not going to take a pole vaulter day one and say, hey, go ahead and pole vault 15 feet, right? <laughs> I'm going to say, here's how you hold a pole. Here's how you do this. And that's what you've got to do, I think, is you got to let these athletes go and then just clean up the mess as you go. Clean it up. It'll show itself, but give them time. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I've seen it in the club track space and even in the, the youth conditioning space where these athletes are being slowed down, like eight, nine, ten year old athletes being slowed down and taught how to taught I could air quotes how to do these things. And and I think to myself, and I I've being around the track and field world a lot, I see a lot of very robotic moving athletes. Uh, where Charlie Francis had talked about a lot of times I just have to erase what this athlete was taught a long time ago because it's messing them up and and I always see this thing I always notice is at the end of club track you get these eight to 14 year old kids and they they're doing like excel three accelerations at the end it's not my warm-up but I just watch it and and they, yeah. they it would be like you would have these kids accelerate especially like the eight nine ten year old boys they would just race each other they would have their buddy next to them and they would just bust off racing and the coach would be like no 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 slow down slow down slow down it's it's easy it's gradual and it's like look i get it i get doing a slow acceleration this is a common track thing it's a feel based thing but these yeah. kids aren't ready to feel that yet. They aren't. They just, right. you're, 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 <laughs> and so as well as like too, like all the slow, like sprint drills and stuff and saying, Hey, do this sprint submaximally. And I just think to myself, I don't know, like I watch kids playing soccer in the infield uh, at the same time, these track kids are warming up and these, you know, emotional maximal movement. And I'm like, man, some of these kids could honestly, with this context, probably be better off just playing soccer than going yeah. through this warm up. And then, you know what, if they want to do track, maybe go race a few, like, you know, one fifties against your buddy afterwards, or do some speed skip races or something like that. Instead of, um, the way that this is again, I don't know. I think that a lot of it's like the parent's perception, the parent sees, Oh, my kid's doing these mechanics drills and they're doing, you know, they're coaching them. Yes. Like right. <laughs> track and track is like a slow, like very easy and simple sport to look at that. But then I think about, yeah, like a, a high speed sport, high velocity. And I like, um, it makes me think about what Jay Schrader had said about just like that high velocity max intention being such a key focal point. And yeah. so often training just kind of that beast gets, um, filtered out over time. So I, I love That's how you, the maximal, I love the maximal yeah. velocity equation. And I think one of the biggest things parents have an issue with and coaches is they're afraid of the ugliness 
or the disorganization of movement if mm. it's not if it's not at an elite level like if i'm not looking like carl lewis <laughs> well you're not doing it right no that's not it if the athletes learn learning is ugly right it just is you know it, it's an ugly disorganized thing in the brain but i mean as we see it but in the brain it's that's how it works right we got all these synapses going off and the more we do it the better and the cleaner it gets so we have if we want the clean we got to accept the dirty right we got to let the that ugliness happen that's the athlete trying to figure it out and that's why when you see a fifth grade basketball game and then five years later you see those kids in high school they're so much better. They're so much cleaner. They're so much more controlled. Well, that's because they went through the ugly. A fifth grade basketball could be ugly, right? I mean, you never know where it's going, what they're doing. They, they, they have no idea. It, like, how about little kids' soccer? They're like bumblebees, right? They all mm -hmm. follow the honey. Wherever it goes, they all follow <laughs> it. Well, if you watch them in high school or college, there's, they're in their own space. They wait for the ball to come to them. You got to let the ugly happen so they learn most coaches and most parents are not patient enough. You've got to allow that to happen. That's how you learn. And we just, we teach through the ugliness. We don't stop the ugliness and try to make it slow and perfect because that, that early ugliness where they're moving fast, that's how they're learning to reorganize their body. We take that away. Now they're just getting good at the drills we're teaching, mm -hmm. not the active play. Yeah, that that really reminds me of um, when Joe DeFranco was on this podcast. He was talking about how he was training athletes just out of a closet, just lifting weights and doing jumps and stuff. And then maybe they occasionally did like a 10 or a 40. Of course, Maxwell, I'm sure when they did do it versus the the speed school down the street was doing the A skips and the B skips with these kids. And I'm sure, like you said, it's like slowing it down so you can look like, quote unquote, Carl Lewis or whatever. It's, and so then I'm sure the parents are like, oh, yeah, like good technique. Yeah. This is awesome. But when they actually went and ran the 40s, Joe's kids were improving way more. And it's just like, you, you don't want to kill that beast. And, and so, um, oh, what was I going to say? I had a, uh, totally, totally escaped me. <laughs> That's just been the trend to think a little bit this morning. So, oh man. Um, anyways, <laughs> did you have any follow up on that? Maybe I'll remember. Otherwise I have my next question for you. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's really what it is. It's, it's, um, and I, and it's easier for me to say it because when I grew up in the seventies running and and playing with my friends and then competing in the eighties. And it was, it was just, it was, um, it was competitive. We ran fast because we competed. We didn't run fast because we learned a technical drill. And, and believe me, I love like you, I love biomechanics. I like getting technical where we have to, but I'm okay with the early foundation of being ugly while they establish mm. speed in their brain. That's the big thing I want. I want, it's just like, you know, Tiger Woods' dad, and you hear this, and you hear uh, Andre Agassi, their coaches told them when they were young, swing fast. We'll figure out hmm. accuracy later. But if you don't develop that swing, you're never going to be the elite. And that's the way I look at movement. Go fast. You'll figure out how to control your speed because you're going to get more exposure to it. But we just are too panicky as an industry. We're like, nah, that doesn't look very good. And if somebody sees it on YouTube, I like sometimes I show the worst videos. I'm like, <laughs> this is learning. This is what learning looks like. It's not always pretty. 
I like that. I like because that that concept of velocity first is universal. And so, well, I remember what I was going to say was uh, when Ty Tyrell was on about 10 shows ago or so, he had mentioned in one of the things he learned from you is it doesn't have to look perfect today. Like, and to be okay with athletes still, because it's almost like, I think, especially in the private sector, it's like, oh, someone's paying me to like make this look good, right? And how am I going to report back? But I, it's like to be okay, like this is part of the process. And, and, um, it almost is like I almost have this vision of like this this velocity net pulling you along. It's dragging you along and you have to figure it out along the way. It's like that's the pressure. It's like this is how fast the game is played and you have to give it up. You almost have to surrender to your nervous system that it's going to learn. And sure. it's like we're so unwilling to surrender to the miracle of the body that it is going to figure it out. Just give it the speed. Give me the speed and I, it, it'll the body and the brain and the subconscious will start putting it together along the way. But it's like we think we have to have this command over the body like oh look at my model is so good and we're gonna slow it down you're gonna do it like this and versus exactly. like that i guess surrender you could call it to to this um miraculous thing we are walking around in so yeah, that's right exactly that is what i kind of remember now it kind of came to me so but I, I love that like i just love that visual so uh all right so the next question i had was um in terms of and maybe this could fit into but uh, how do you warm up? So, because uh, I think this this fits in the sense of the sport and the 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 prep or the the athletic performance kind of merging together. But um, do you have advice that you give, or, or how you'd like to see an athlete warm up for the game? They have a competition, and um, are they utilizing some of the things, or are you giving them potentially things to utilize or think about? Or um, with everything you learned, how do you um, look at game, actual game, actual competition warm ups? Yeah. So I, when we would warm up for a game, um, we typically, and I'll use just basketball as an example because it's an easy one to visualize. So we did warm-ups with the ball. So like, you know how, you know how we do a kind of a stretch or mobility where we spread our feet really wide and we shift side to side, you know, and we're trying to stretch our adductors and stuff. Well, we do that, but we do it with a ball and we do like five wraps around one leg and then we slide to the other side, do five reps. Then we give it to our partner and then they do it. So we're, we're incorporating skill work. But when I'm doing those reps, I'm loosening my shoulders, my core. I'm getting my hips. I'm getting ankle mobility. We're doing all those things, but we're contacting the ball. So we're touching the ball, which is really important. And that's what I want. And then we start doing various types of passing drills where we pass you know, in front of us, around our back, between our legs. And we're trying to incorporate coordination, getting heat. We're getting warm. Uh, we're going through all these rotational transverse range of motions. We're bending our knees because sometimes when we pass, we go into this lunge. So now I'm getting ankle range of motion and my knees are getting, you know, uh, forced to be sta become stabilized. Um, so that's how our warm-up looked. We did a lot of stuff like that. In the locker room, I would have the athletes, like they had foam rollers if they wanted them. We had band, little mini green bands to do hip stuff if they wanted. But when we actually did a warm-up on the floor, everything was with the ball. And so the athletes liked it because they touched the ball. Um, they were doing skills the whole time. So we were constantly practicing, you know, touching the ball. And it, and it just made it flow very easily into a game. You know, it wasn't like we... We did all the skips and all that mm -hmm. stuff. If we do skips, we're doing it dribbling. Oh, like nice. we, we have to time it or we skip it and then pass it under our legs. When the front leg blocks up high, we pass underneath. So my, my 
warm up. This is why we call it a prep period. It's like we're preparing. Let's let's prepare. That's what we're trying to do. So that's what mine look like. Even if I do, you know, like we'll take a basketball and we'll roll it in front of us, and then we reach across with the opposite arm and then roll it back and then reach across. So now I'm incorporating lat to the opposite glute through that thoracolumbar fascia. So I'm getting them loose, getting what I want as a performance coach, but as a basketball coach, I want them ready to touch the ball and go and play. So that's kind of how we would do stuff. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, it's per, it's perfect. And, and especially in light of just everything we've been talking, like how important is perception reaction then, like you're saying, even just rhythm and acquainting with the ball and everything. Uh, it just makes sense. Like, why would you, I guess, spend, it's almost like when the strength coach or performance coach goes too far, it's like, oh, here's all this extra stuff without the ball we need to do because I need to, like, you know, validate my job or whatever. But it's like, no, like, don't, you know, and I, I mean, I'm sure it's not terrible, but it's like the ultimate warm up is that full sync with a visual field and the ball and everything you're actually going to be playing with. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, speaking of vision, too, do you do anything? I mean, obviously, everything you do is very much, especially the ball, very much vision related. But can you go into, I mean, do you do anything beyond, um, well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll make this a little wider. But one, how do you approach, um, just from a general perspective, approaching just vision? Like, do you ever notice athletes who just don't seem to see the ball very well? Like, that's what you're missing. You just aren't seeing well. And, and then how might you address that? Yeah, yeah, we do. We see that. I don't do anything uh, like with technology mm -hmm. just simply because I don't have it. Right. I don't like if I don't have all the, you know, the lighting stuff and doing those things like that. I at facilities I've been at in way in the past, we I've used them. Um, but what I try to do is things like juggling, um, you know, so we'll start if they can't juggle, we'll start them with scarves so that it slows it down. So when I toss and that thing crosses, and now another thing crosses here, now my vision has to become much more keen. I have to be able to locate, pick up, and perceive where that's coming down. Well, at the beginning, I might just toss one ball, right, for a beginner, but then I'll go up, up, catch, catch, and then we'll add the third ball. So we did juggling a lot. I had this big bat. It was a, it was a, um, a tennis hopper, right? I, I used to have that at, at practice, and – Players would have to get a ball and they would do stuff like that. They would learn to juggle. And so that was a really good visual acuity thing for me. The other thing we did is we would have a partner stand behind them. So if I were standing behind you, I take my tennis ball and I would tap you on the back that you knew the ball was coming shortly after that. I would toss it over your head somewhere, maybe over your right shoulder left. And you just have to see it when you see it, you mm. had to react and try to catch it. So it, it's really just in a nutshell, it's picking up the ball early and then moving your hand to where you feel that ball is going to be. So we would do things like that. We also did one drill that I liked a lot. We would do this with the basketball or the tennis is we'd get them into groups of three. So, for example, if we looked at a uh, basketball court, so maybe the, the, the person who's doing the running and the, has to use a vision stood on the foul line. The other two people stood on the elbows and what they would do is they would hold their ball and the two that had the ball would coincide with each other and say, okay, I'm going to drop it. You don't do it. And the person didn't know. So I would drop my ball. Then the person in the middle had to react and go to mine. Or if the other person dropped it, they'd react there. That's how I did my vision stuff. It's, it's kind of, you know, archaic. It's not, you know, it's not a lot of technology, but it's vision with tracking with accomplishing a catch 
or or attacking space. So that was how we would do stuff like that. In the second part of that, Joel, and I know we've already talked about this a lot, the athletes loved it. It was fun. It was challenging. One of the hardest ones I do with them is if you put your hands out like this, so my hands are out in front of my chest, palms facing down. The other partner had two tennis balls and put their hands on the outside of mine. And they either dropped the right or the left. And the athlete had to quickly react and catch. Then I would make them go cross brain. And if I drop this ball over here on my left, my right hand had to come over and catch it. Toughest drill mm. that they've had to do, but I'm telling you, I can't get them to stop doing it because they're like, no, I'll get mm -hmm. this one. And they want to keep doing it. So I'm getting vision training. I'm getting a kinesthetic differentiation, right? Uh, how hard, how much pressure. And so that's how I would approach it. And that's kind of like a poor man's version, right? So any coach can do these without having technology. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more with like the poor man's because I think the, the most simple and, and human and it's actual ball and not a light, I would prefer that kind of thing. I actually yeah. look at it. I almost look at it as these two poles as one is is everything you're doing. And it's very natural and organic and things out these need to pick up. And then the other pole is almost to me is like the the really going into the, the raw vision stuff, like the, the people who really coach vision on the very not like the lights, but like the, uh, do you have, um, you know, binocularity and do you have this? Right. And I've, I never, I always wanted to get more into that when I was working with tennis, but I just didn't have, to be honest, I just didn't have the time. Like I would have loved to, I just didn't have the time. And I got as far as the Brock string where you like, you know, have that Brock string, you try to like look at the dots and all I remembered clearly with as far as I got to do it, is this one guy in the tennis team who would whiff backhands, like he would airball backhands. <laughs> I was like, I think you're supposed you're supposed to see two two strings like in these particular when these balls are in the particular point. And I remember he's just like, I just see one string, coach. And I was like, uh, okay. And then we figure out that's why he's like whiffing these backhands. But I didn't know <laughs> enough to like, I didn't know enough to be able to offer him like a corrective program. It was just kind of this funny thing. And I think he actually ended up not playing after a year after that. Cause he was, he was a good athlete. He just couldn't see the ball. And I just didn't right. know. I just wasn't, didn't, but again, I just almost look at like all those colored lights. I'm like, that's non-specific. all the stuff in the middle, right? The between the raw and the, the things you're doing, like all the colored light stuff, I feel like is more, as I see, it's kind of like fancy, non-specific work that looks cool on some level versus um, if you can do one or the other, I think that is a like better service to the athlete. And I kind of wish having the Brock string, if I go back in time, like, could that guy juggle who had that miss on there? So probably not. <laughs> he probably yeah. would be missing it with the left hand all the time. So I, I think that'd be a cool correlation to try to draw. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with it. And it's, uh, it's um, you know, it's one of those things where, if you don't tie, like if, a, if an athlete has a vision issue, okay, there's something there that it's out of my lane, right? Mm -hmm. I need a professional to help. That has to be taken care of. But I still think if the vision isn't correlated with uh, the, the speed or the angle or how much speed I have to be able to accomplish getting at that angle to make a play, I think it all ties in together. That's why I'm real big on I don't only want them to recognize where the ball is, like see it real quick. I want them to now have to attack space. How much speed do I have to use to get there? How, you know, so I, I just think that stuff's really important. And we sometimes we get caught too much up into the flashing lights. And but if the lights aren't moving mm -hmm. after the first couple reps, the athlete has the exact same movement pattern in in pressure pushing into the ground to get there versus having to read depth, angles, height, 
you know, so I, I think there's a, that's an important aspect of it. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. It's, it's definitely specificity, man. It's just where it's at. Uh, okay. So we're coming about to the end of our time. And actually I'm going to ask you a question that maybe uh, breaks slightly from everything else we've talked about, but I think it'd be good for, especially for people who might not be involved so much in that youth uh, continuum and some yeah. of that baseline, you know, maybe for people who just work in the university sector and it's just, and there's more of a singularity of physical skills, but I know uh, you've talked a lot about low box training and I'll enter to this saying I, I actually, one thought I had when you're talking about the high velocity start, I think about things that are just fast, just how many, because I think I, I, and I fell prey to this and I think I even coached this way for a while, but like, it's almost like the tendency and speed is, oh, make your stride longer, lift your knee higher, do these things that are almost slow you down in a sense. If you do it long enough, and I figured this out recently, is like, if you do that stuff for long enough or a long enough period of time, you kind of lose that frequency inner animal that you have that's just like da 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 da. And I've even heard of um, like Tony Wells, a really well known sprint coach who passed away a few years back. Uh, There's a thing on Twitter how he almost would go, um, uh, I would almost call like outside in, or but he would start with start an athlete just doing five strides a second and then get their stride lengthened. And I think that was an interesting thing because everyone just wants to go length and then inwards. Um, so anyways, I, I love that velocity first idea. I think there's a lot of power behind it. But so maybe that's my segue to, I know you like low box training because I know there's some high frequency type implications of that, but how, how might you use, or what is low box training? Uh, I think especially too, maybe if we're in, in the winter in a lot of places, confined, small spaces, yada, yada. Um, tell me a little bit about low box training, what it does and, and how you'll use it. Yeah, definitely. So, so I came up with low box training in 1991. It was about the same time I came up with the fake throw mm-hmm. concepts. I did, and it had to do with working with tennis, right? I was at the tennis academies, low box. What it initially did, the reason I did it the first time is I, from watching, I knew the tennis players and then it comes with all athletes they had to be able to manage their mass and momentum really well with the outside leg on a reactive change of direction, right? They had to be able to get that outside leg. So I was trying to get them to get off their inside leg. So I put them up on this little Reebok. Remember the old Reebok, big, you know, step aerobic steps? Oh, yeah. There was a bunch of those. So I started using those and I said, look, start on one side, shuffle across and plant your outside leg and then come back to me really quick. And that's how it started. Then I started putting all these methodologies to it. but so in essence, what it is, it's it's getting the athletes to understand how to decelerate their mass and momentum and change that really quick, which we'll call reacceleration. Um, and we can start it out by doing like simple straddle jumps. So if I stood on top of a box that's about 18 inches wide and I jumped off, straddled off, and then came right back on, I try to do that as fast as I can. So even though I'm working on kind of, even though my body's not translating, my feet are sticking into the ground wider than my hips and shoulders. So I'm actually getting work on lateral plants. I'm getting work on hitting in somewhat dorsiflex position. I'm getting that foot resiliency. And we really work on that massive, massive speed. And and then I started translating that with... um, uh, other forms of movement. Like I could put a band around someone, I could have them split step or jump stop or, or decelerate. And so the low box was a way for me to unweight one leg or Mm. both legs and be able to apply massive quick force with the opposite leg. So that's how it came about. And then we just have other technical aspects to it. 
So in a sense, it's kind of like an overspeed change of direction in the simplest terms because you have that little unweighting of the top leg. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And they learn really quick uh, how important tilting reflexes are and tilting actions. So if I'm shuffling to my right or during a shuttle run even, or a 5-10-5, we could say, if I'm planting that right foot and I tilt my body to the right, Okay, that's going to take me out of a good reacceleration angle back because I'm, now my weight is getting vertically over that foot versus staying horizontally inside it. And so I want to take off like a jet plane, right? I don't want to be like a helicopter and go straight up. So I need to be able to have those angles. And that's how we can do that through the low box training. And you mentioned it earlier, Joel, right now is a great time because if you're stuck inside, if it's winter time where you are, you can do this stuff in a small space and still get massive quickness for lateral speed. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, just, I think that's um, that's one of the beauties of, I think, you know, the silver linings, I guess you could say, of all the restrictions is it makes us be yeah. creative. And so and I think in a reductionism to like these simple, really simple things that you just have to do a lot and figure out, I, I think that there's a lot to that stuff that we often miss by trying to get a little more fancy with a lot of these drills. And so would you say, so I'm just trying to picture, I know, um, and I think you have a, you have a product for low box training, don't you? Or something like that. Or is there more resources on that type of stuff? I'd be curious to, you know, I definitely would be interested in directing people to that, especially this time when people are in small quarters and things like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No, yeah, we do. We have, I did it years ago, low box <laughs> training. Um, that's what it's called. It's called low box training for athletes. And, uh, and there's a whole series of them. And, and gosh, I would have to say it's got to be close to 15 years now when I did that. And it's still very applicable. I just have changed my height. I used to do more with four and six inch. I do a lot more now with about the height of an Olympic plate, like a 45 pound, you know, Olympic plate. That's about two inches. Oh, wow. I do a lot of two, two and a half inches in that range just because it fits more into the mechanics of change of direction. Yeah, that's something that I want to find, like to play around with more is just two inch box type work. Even and I'm, one of my big things has just been that I want to start doing is um, like you see them a lot in track and feel like long jump, a big, like long, flat two inch box. And you do all these drills. And sometimes I feel like people just get carried away with them. Like every time I saw people long jumping, I just saw all these crazy box combinations. I'm like, OK, maybe we're just getting too far carried away with this. Yeah. But I just I, I do like the idea of. Uh, I talked with the Darian Bar about this, like that the, the box creates a small fall and like dealing with more of a fall and how to set up like how to set up like a two leg jump or one leg jump, things like that. I've been meaning to do more of it. So it got me thinking to um, what you have done with that as well. And so with the change of direction too, just quickly, do you do, you do um, like a run like would you do run into the box and, and go on? Or is it always like in the small space? Are you never really getting outside the plane of the box? I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. No, I we actually have exercises where we'll start away from the box, come into it, negotiate the feet over the box and plant and go. Because what you're trying to teach in that case is it isn't about like you don't want to elevate into the cup. You want to what you do is you flex the hips and the knees and the ankles and you 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 pull them up underneath you. It's almost like, you know, like in the movies, we see a spaceship and it pulls its, you know, it pulls its supports that it landed with yeah, up yeah, yeah. underneath it. It doesn't raise up. It just pulls it up. So when I go into that cup, my head stays level, 
I just lift, I flex, and then I plant on a wider angle. So I come up and then I stick on that angle and come out of it. So absolutely, you can do that. That would be a more advanced progression for an athlete, but it's it's definitely one that I've used often with that athletes. Yeah, I think about it. It makes you fold up more, basically. It, it, exactly. it creates a squat or a folding. I, I love that because I think it's so applicable to change of direction, jumping. And that's where I actually see a link between change of direction and jumping if you do the change of direction correctly is that folding up. And I love that stuff. Do you have any videos like on YouTube I could throw in the show notes for the show? I think you. I've seen some stuff. Uh, hopefully, I can grab those and throw a few in the show notes as well. I think they're. In, it's definitely really interesting and very simple and good work. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, you know, at my Lee Taft uh, YouTube channel, there I have tons of videos on that, so I can uh, I can send you some uh, if you want that you can you can share. But yeah, if they, if people go to Lee Taft YouTube, there I have hundreds of videos on all these things and they're all not all of them but most of them are done in my garage where you know i've got the plyrobic flooring so they can see small space training using low boxes and bands and stuff like that yeah awesome i'll definitely have to post those i want to go check them out myself so that maybe i'll do that (laughs) as a warm-up for my next workout as well so well hey i I think i think we had a few more questions but that's okay i love the flow of the talk today and it was just man just great stuff i'm I'm excited to get out and you know continue my high velocity pursuits and it's just it's really great to have this big picture especially as i move forward as a coach in my own evolution so i thank you so much for your time lee really appreciate it today man thank you joel this was a blast and i love the conversation thanks for tuning in to another show awesome to have you guys here and uh, if you enjoyed the show you can always help us out leaving us a rating or review is highly appreciated and we will um we're looking forward to seeing you guys back next week with another guest we will see you then have a good one